0: Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 62, The World Stage. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you, once again, that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. I also want to thank the listener who sent me a digital copy of a rare book, that otherwise would have cost me over a hundred dollars. It was a huge help in writing this episode. I would also like to thank the listener who sent me a 27-year-old bottle of Armagnac. I would also like to thank the listener who sent me a 27-year-old bottle of Armagnac. It has not been terribly helpful for the show, but I very much appreciate it nonetheless. Anyway, now that Napoleon is in power, our story has changed in some fundamental ways. When we started the narrative, the important events of Napoleon's life were mostly personal, leaving home at a young age, his experiences at Brienne, the premature death of his father, etc. As he moved from childhood to youth, he was able to become a player in much bigger events, first major battles and campaigns, then national politics. Now Napoleon is in his early 30s, entering the prime of his life, and the scale of our story is increasing again. As the sole undisputed ruler of the most powerful country in Europe, Bonaparte was now the chief protagonist of global politics and diplomacy, and the de facto leader of the revolution, whatever was left of it. From now on, most of the great dramas of his life will play out on the world stage. And so, in this episode, we'll be delving into the world of diplomacy, checking in on the other great European powers to see how they were trying, and mostly failing, to handle the rise of Republican France. When we left the main narrative in episode 58, the War of the Second Coalition was winding down. Russia had pulled out of the war, Austria and France had signed a long-term ceasefire, and were negotiating for a permanent peace treaty. In Britain, the pro-war Prime Minister, William Pitt, had been ousted, replaced by Henry Addington, who immediately opened up channels with France to begin preliminary peace talks. The end of the war seemed to be right around the corner, although, as we'll see in this episode, it would take a tremendous effort to make peace a reality. By 1801, the wars of the French Revolution had raged for almost a decade. Every European great power had been involved at one stage or another. Hardly any country on the continent had managed to remain neutral. The struggle had even reached as far away as India, the Middle East, and the Americas, a truly global conflict. With war on this scale, the events at the negotiating table, after the fighting, are often more important than any battle. This type of war represents a rupture of the old status quo. The treaties ending the war create a new status quo. The nature of those treaties, and the attitudes of the signatories, determine whether or not peace endures. So in a sense, the end of the War of the First Coalition was an opportunity. The rise of revolutionary France had destroyed the old balance of power. Now, peace was in the air, and the great powers were free to forge a new equilibrium. Diplomatically speaking, Europe was close to a blank slate. Over the next few episodes, we'll dive into the negotiations, as France and the other great powers attempt to forge this new status quo. Among other things, hopefully we'll get some idea of why that new status quo disintegrated so quickly. But before we get too deep into the details, we should remind ourselves of some of the general principles of Napoleonic-era diplomacy. The geopolitical terrain at the dawn of the 19th century was drastically different from ours today. For starters, diplomacy was very fluid. Today's enemy could be tomorrow's ally, and vice versa think of the way Russia went from fighting as Britain's ally as a member of the Second Coalition to leading the League of Armed Neutrality, and on the brink of war against Britain. Now, some of that was due to Emperor Paul's infamously erratic style of rule, but it was far from unprecedented. We've actually seen this before, much earlier in the show, during the War of the First Coalition, when Spain switched sides. In the great European conflict of the previous generation, the Seven Years' War, France and Austria had put aside their deep historical enmity to fight as allies against the Prussians and the British. Russia fought alongside the French and the Austrians, but after the war immediately turned around and signed an alliance with Prussia. Two great powers might view themselves as natural allies in one region, but bitter rivals in another. They might team up to fight a mutual rival, then fall out over the peace treaty, like bandits fighting over the spoils of a big score. The most common explanation for all this instability is the inherent difficulty of creating a balance between so many great powers. Very few of you listening can remember a world with more than a few competing great powers. In this era of history, there were five Britain, France, Russia, Austria, and Prussia all seeking to increase their own power and influence relative to the others, and hoping to prevent any one of the others from becoming too powerful. On top of that, there were secondary powers, like the Netherlands, Naples, Spain, the United States, and the Ottoman Empire, who sometimes were more or less influenced by another great power, but pursued their own independent foreign policies. This system incentivized chaos, as countries would band together to tear down a powerful rival or pounce on a weak neighbor, then realign once the balance of power shifted. There were all kinds of factors contributing to this cutthroat diplomatic atmosphere. As we've seen, in this age of absolute monarchy, even the personal whims of individual rulers could play a role. The result of all this diplomatic instability was a lot of warfare. When the wars of the French Revolution began in 1792, they were just the latest great power confrontation in a century that had already seen the Great Northern War, the War of the Spanish Succession, the War of the Quadruple Alliance, the War of the Polish Succession, the War of the Austrian Succession, the Seven Years' War, the American War of Independence, the Partitions of Poland, and the War of the Bavarian Succession. And those are just the conflicts involving more than one great power. There were many more smaller conflicts during this same period. For instance, the Russians were engaged in almost constant expansionist warfare along their borders during the 18th century. The British fought several small-scale colonial wars against Spain. I could go on. So what's the upshot? First off, it's worth emphasizing that the members of the coalition were only slightly more wary of France than they were of each other. Negotiators on all sides viewed their allies as potential enemies, and their enemies as potential future partners. Second, the wars of the French Revolution were only the latest in a long series of European great power conflicts. The diplomats negotiating the end of the War of the Second Coalition would be far from the first to fail to create a stable, durable peace in Europe. eBay Motors is here for the ride. It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The second concept of 18th-century diplomacy I'd like to highlight is compensation. I've mentioned this before in the past, but just to recap— During this period, it was considered standard practice for the defeated side in a war to be compensated for any territorial losses, usually with new territory elsewhere. A great example of this principle is when Napoleon handed Venice over to the Austrians at the end of the War of the First Coalition. The Austrian territory of Lombardy was annexed by a pro-French sister republic, so the Habsburgs had to be compensated with Venice. In some ways, 18th century warfare was more like an extremely heated diplomatic conference than a modern total war. Each side was fighting primarily for a better position at the negotiating table, rather than for the total annihilation of the enemy. This meant peace treaties could include dozens of clauses, with colonies and provinces changing hands, and complex diplomatic and commercial concessions from every combatant. The great German military theorist Karl von Clausewitz famously said, War is the continuation of diplomacy by other means. Never was that more true than during the 18th and early 19th century. This way of doing things was beginning to change in the Napoleonic era, with the advent of total war and mass political mobilization. But we can see elements of this old style of diplomacy persist well into the 19th century. On one hand, this was an absolutely cutthroat diplomatic environment. Every man for himself, no honor among thieves, all that. But on the other hand, when I study the foreign policy of this era, I sometimes find it refreshingly free of pretension and hypocrisy. And it was not pure law of the jungle. As we've seen, this system did have rules and norms, but they were much looser and less formal than our own, and of course simply different there was a lot more room for the open pursuit of national aggrandizement and rivalry with other powers. So, with all that in mind, let's take a look at each of the great powers. What brought them to the negotiating table? What did they hope to achieve? We'll start with the Russians, the first of France's enemies to open talks. As you might remember, Emperor Paul withdrew from the coalition rather suddenly in late 1799, after General Suvorov's disastrous retreat over the Alps from Switzerland. However, when I say the Russians pulled out of the coalition, I mean that only in the most literal sense. Paul ordered his armies to break off hostilities, turn around, and march back to Russia. Russian involvement with the war was over, but there was no corresponding ceasefire or treaty with France. The Russian military had simply stopped participating. As I've mentioned several times, Emperor Paul had a reputation for erratic shifts in policy, and the abrupt way he'd broken things off with the coalition certainly fits with that aspect of his character. But this decision itself was not irrational. Paul simply went about pursuing it in his typical rash manner. By late 1799, there were solid reasons for the Russians to second-guess their involvement with the coalition. Much of the logic which had led them to declare war on France simply no longer held true. One of Russia's greatest long-term foreign policy ambitions was to secure a permanent presence in the Mediterranean, opening a permanent route to Russia's home waters in the Black Sea, and creating bases from which they might project their maritime power westwards. The strategic and commercial benefits were potentially huge. Over the course of the 18th century, the Russians fought a series of successful wars against the Ottoman Empire, seizing territory and slowly expanding their influence southwest, towards the warm waters of the Mediterranean. If things kept going this way, Russian policymakers hoped that within a few decades, they might secure control of the Dardanelles Straits, the gateway between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Then, perhaps their friends on Malta, the Order of St. John, might allow the Russians to base a fleet on the island. And just like that, the Russian Empire would be a major player in southern European affairs. The Russians believed all they had to do to realize their Mediterranean ambition was wail on the Turks in a few more wars, and given the disparity between the Russian and Ottoman militaries, they were confident that meant it was just a matter of time. This is why the French invasion of Egypt and conquest of Malta had set off so many alarm bells in St. Petersburg. A major Republican presence in the eastern Mediterranean could ruin everything. The French were direct competition for influence in the region. And if they were successful, they might even be in a position to block any further Russian expansion. So, on top of the Emperor's personal hatred of the Revolution, there was a solid strategic reason for Russia to declare war on France in 1798. But just over a year later, the situation in the Eastern Mediterranean was very different. Malta had fallen to the British. French naval power in the region had been shattered by Nelson at the Battle of the Nile. The Army of the Orient was reduced to a fraction of its former size, abandoned by Bonaparte and hold up in Alexandria, under siege by a massive Anglo-Ottoman army. Everyone knew surrender was imminent. In 1798, it had looked like the French would be a powerful force in the region for the foreseeable future. Now, it was reasonably safe to assume they would soon be gone. But who would step into the void left by the Republicans? It couldn't be Russia, not while the Ottomans still controlled the passage into the Mediterranean. It couldn't be the Turks, either. Bonaparte had repeatedly humiliated the Ottoman armies. The ease and speed of his conquests had laid bare the Ottoman Empire's weaknesses. The only real beneficiary of these developments was Britain. From the Russian perspective, this wasn't much of an improvement. At the beginning of the war, they'd been worried about the presence of French troops in Malta and Egypt, and a French fleet in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, there were British troops occupying Malta, a British army fighting in Egypt, and Nelson's fleet controlling the sea. All the Russians had really done in this theater of the war was swap out the presence of one rival great power for that of another rival great power. So from this perspective, you can see how the Russians might logically conclude that the French threat was neutralized and that it was time to reorient their foreign policy to face this new challenge from the British. By late 1799, the Russians were not happy with developments in Central Europe either. Due to simple geography, their involvement in this theater of the war meant working in close coordination with the Habsburg armies. This proved to be an unhappy relationship. In the past, Russia and Austria viewed one another as natural partners against their mutual enemies, the Poles and the Turks. But with Poland erased from the map, the two empires shared a common border for the first time in history, and that historical friendship was quickly giving away to rivalry. Russia and Austria were allies against France, but they viewed each other with suspicion. Even during the early months of the war, when the coalition armies were winning huge victories, there were coordination problems between the two militaries. The Russians suspected the Austrians were trying to manipulate them into doing their dirty work in a war that primarily served Habsburg interests. Meanwhile, the Austrians suspected the Russians of using the war as a pretext to project power further west into Europe, at the expense of Habsburg influence. Neither side was mistaken. By late 1799, the war had turned sour for the coalition, and as you might expect, the Austrians blamed the Russians, and the Russians blamed the Austrians. These recriminations put further strain on an already difficult relationship. Before long, the Russians were gone. So, as you can see, Emperor Paul had some solid reasons to leave the coalition even if he ultimately went about it in a hasty, impulsive fashion. Russia had successfully checked the French advance into the western Mediterranean, but now had to worry about a potential new threat from her British ally. The collaboration with Austria was simply not working out. The two countries had too many areas of conflict and too few mutual interests to be effective partners. There were other factors, too. The coalition put Russia in the awkward position of fighting to defend the Ottoman Empire, arguably her greatest historical enemy, who the Russians wanted to invade to seize more territory at some point in the near future. And finally, this war was simply far more important to the other members of the coalition than it was to Russia. Revolutionary France was an existential danger to Britain and Austria, but not much more than an occasional nuisance to Russia and so Emperor Paul ordered his armies home. As you might imagine, First Consul Bonaparte followed these developments with great interest. Surveying the geopolitical scene, he saw that there was an opening not only for peace with Russia, but perhaps some degree of collaboration against the coalition, maybe even a military alliance he sent overtures to Emperor Paul and organized the release of 7,000 Russian prisoners of war as a show of good faith. By late 1800, French and Russian diplomats were engaged in serious talks. Napoleon encouraged Paul to form the League of Armed Neutrality. As tensions ratcheted up between Britain and Russia, it seemed like Paul and Napoleon were on the road to an official military alliance. According to some sources, the Russians even began massing troops in Central Asia for an invasion of British India. But, of course, we all know what happened to Emperor Paul. On the night of March 23, 1801, a group of disgruntled Russian army officers entered his apartments and brutally murdered their sovereign. The crown passed to Paul's 23-year-old son, Alexander, an Anglophile. Napoleon's hopes of a Russian alliance were dashed. But this didn't mean Russia would go straight back into the arms of the coalition. Alexander's sympathies may have been with the British, but he was no puppet. He continued to seek accommodation with France. Direct military cooperation was no longer on the table, but the new emperor did want a permanent peace treaty with the Republic. Alexander hoped to win all kinds of concessions from France mostly diplomatic guarantees for minor Russian allies in Central Europe, which he hoped would help maintain the balance of power in that region. The trouble was, Alexander had no leverage. As I said earlier, peace treaties in this era were highly transactional, armed negotiations rather than existential confrontations. A country's bargaining chips were the territories they occupied, the menace of their armies and the cost to the enemy of continuing the war. Well, the Russians didn't occupy any French territory, their armies were no longer deployed against the Republic, and it wasn't costing France any money or manpower to remain at war with Russia. And so, with nothing really to offer, Alexander got no significant concessions out of Bonaparte. The two countries would be at peace once again, but there were no guarantees that the two sides would respect one another's interests. Napoleon had his measure of Alexander. In his judgment, the young emperor was pliant and susceptible to influence, which suited Bonaparte just fine. So that gets us caught up with Franco-Russian relations. The treaty between the two powers was guaranteed by nothing more than the trust and goodwill of its signatories. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Chronologically speaking, the next great power to leave the war was Austria. Although, as we'll see, the question of when exactly the Habsburgs dropped out of the War of the Second Coalition is somewhat open to interpretation. As you might remember, the Habsburgs agreed to a ceasefire with France after their stunning defeat by Napoleon at the Battle of Marengo in the summer of 1800. Everyone involved assumed this ceasefire agreement would be the prelude to a permanent peace treaty between the two powers, Napoleon included. However, by late 1800, talks between France and Austria had gone nowhere. At Austria's request, Napoleon had extended the ceasefire several times, but he was beginning to worry that the Habsburgs were dragging their heels on purpose, leading him along to buy time to rebuild their armies and continue the war. Bonaparte wanted a treaty. He had promised peace to the people of France, and was eager to devote his full energy to his domestic agenda. He had even gone so far as to offer relatively lenient terms to the Austrians a new treaty based on the Treaty of Campo Formio, which had ended the last war. The Habsburgs were in bad shape. Once again, for the second time in less than a decade, their armies had been mauled by the Republicans. The expense of maintaining their armies in the field and raising new regiments was pushing the government ever deeper into debt. British subsidies helped, but didn't come close to making up the deficit. The strategic picture looked bad, too. The Habsburg heartland was under direct threat of invasion, and most of Austria's minor allies had been knocked out of the war. Both sides had good reasons to seek peace, and there was a reasonable proposal to end the war on the table. So, what was the problem? Amazingly, despite Austria's desperate position, there was a strong faction within the Habsburg court who opposed any treaty along the lines proposed by Napoleon. In fact, they considered the pre-war status quo so dangerous for Austria that they would rather continue the ruinous war than return to the terms of Campo Formio. It almost sounds suicidal, but when you take a broader look at Austria's diplomatic position, I think they might have had a point. Wenzel Anton, the Prince of Kaunitz, who was the leading Austrian political and diplomatic figure for most of the mid-to-late 18th century, summed up the Habsburg diplomatic position this way, quote, If that empire is to be considered the greatest and most powerful, which has the most secure borders and the least to fear from its neighbors, then Austria is to be counted among the weak, despite its size and inner resources. End quote. That really gets to the heart of it. To a certain extent, all the great powers were surrounded by enemies and facing potential threats on every side, but no country in Europe shared its borders with quite so many rivals or had its interests scattered quite so widely across the continent. To the south were the Turks, to the east were the Poles, and after the fall of Poland, the Russians. To the north was Prussia, to the west was France. The Habsburgs controlled modern-day Belgium, which meant they were directly affected by northern European affairs. Their holdings in Italy made them a player in that arena, too. The office of Holy Roman Emperor meant that a matter involving any one of the dozens of minor German states was the Habsburg Emperor's business, too. So the Austrian government's focus was constantly being pulled in a dozen different directions. We've already seen a great example of this at the beginning of the War of the First Coalition, when the Austrians couldn't commit their full resources to the fight against France because they were distracted by events in Poland. Over the course of the 18th century, this perilous geopolitical position had taken a toll on Austria. For a whole variety of reasons, the Habsburgs had lost a lot of ground relative to the other great powers. It's no exaggeration to say that Austria was at war for most of the 18th century against the Turks, the French, the Prussians, the Poles, and various rebels from within their own empire. Many of these conflicts were quite costly, in gold, manpower, political capital, or all three, and the outcomes had often not been to Austria's advantage. From the Habsburg perspective, the geostrategic situation in Europe was developing for the worse, and had been for quite some time. For decades, the Habsburgs had dominated Central Europe. Then, suddenly, a new rival arose, right on Austria's doorstep. A German-speaking great power from within the Holy Roman Empire, Prussia. Prussia's rise came largely at Austria's expense. They beat the Austrians on the battlefield, conquered Silesia, formerly one of the richest and most developed territories in the Habsburg Empire, and extended Prussian influence into what had formerly been Austria's backyard. For all of living memory, the Habsburg dynasty had been the sort of unofficial leaders of all the German states. Of course, that didn't mean the other German states always followed their lead, Like so much of the power wielded by the Habsburgs, this was a tenuous connection, held together by tradition and careful diplomacy. But the Prussians broke this paradigm. There was now an alternative, another German-speaking member of the Holy Roman Empire in Central Europe, who could make their presence felt on the world stage. Prussia was still quite a bit smaller than the Habsburg Empire, but the highly trained and disciplined Prussian army, and the less famous but no less important Prussian bureaucracy allowed them to punch above their weight. In the future, even when the Austrians and Prussians agree to work against the French, this deep rivalry will remain in the background. The Habsburgs were also lagging behind the other great powers when it came to important administrative and military reforms. During this era, every state was desperate to centralize, professionalize, and modernize. Regimes who did so successfully could expect to reap tremendous financial, military, and political rewards. Unlike their rivals, the Habsburgs didn't rule over a single unified realm. We might talk about Austria or the Habsburg Empire as a shorthand for the various lands ruled by the emperor but this is a convenient fiction, not a reflection of reality. There was no unified Habsburg realm. There was Austria, Hungary, Bohemia, Burgundy, Flanders, Dalmatia, Transylvania, and more than a dozen other territories, all legally separate from one another, with their own laws, courts, and feudal estates, unified only because the same man stood at the top of their respective political systems. On top of that, there was the office of the Holy Roman Emperor, which was a whole separate institution which came with its own unique set of powers and duties. Simply holding this patchwork empire together was a massive undertaking. The last major attempt at reforming the system into something resembling a centralized state had nearly brought the whole enterprise crashing down. Every European power faced setbacks during this period as they tried to build the power of the state, but no one faced quite as many challenges as the Austrians. To their credit, the Austrians did not throw up their hands and admit defeat. Generations of Habsburg bureaucrats and courtiers did their best to strengthen and reform the empire and squeeze every efficiency possible out of this deeply inefficient system, but it was an uphill battle. So, now they were contemplating the possibility of a second defeat in less than a decade at the hands of their greatest rival. Austrian policymakers worried about the implications that might have for their country's long-term trajectory. They were well aware that their country was vulnerable and falling behind. Some Habsburg diplomats worried their country was at a turning point that one more defeat might signal the beginning of a downward spiral from which they might never recover. France might enforce a peace which weakened Austria for the next war, then attack again, and force the Habsburgs into an even more punitive treaty, which would in turn weaken them for the next attack, and etc., until Austria was permanently diminished, maybe even destroyed for good. It might sound far-fetched, But this is what happened to Poland, which had now vanished from the map, having been completely consumed by her rivals. The Austrians themselves had been huge beneficiaries of the partitions of Poland, so the example had not been lost on them. This is why, against all odds, there was a large faction within the Austrian court that favored continuing the war with France. As ruinous and difficult as the war was, They believed this might be Austria's last chance to fight the Republic on something approaching equal terms. Interestingly, one of their biggest opponents was Archduke Charles, brother of the Emperor and one of Austria's leading military commanders. Charles was a man of war, but he was far more optimistic about his country's future than the Hawks. He had big plans to reform the Habsburg armies which he believed might make them competitive with France once again in the near future. Archduke Charles and his supporters advocated a speedy peace with France, so he could begin that reform process as soon as possible. And so these two factions argued, debated, and fought to gain influence over the emperor. This is why Austrian diplomacy during this period seems so wishy-washy and non-committal. They weren't stalling for time, they were genuinely conflicted and couldn't reach a consensus among themselves. In the end, the pro-war faction won out. Archduke Charles was dismissed as leader of Habsburg forces in Germany, replaced by his much less competent younger brother, Archduke John. The ceasefire with France expired, and Habsburg forces prepared a new offensive to drive General Jean Moreau and the Army of the Rhine from their positions in southern Germany. The Austrian attack began well. The Republicans were genuinely surprised by this sudden sign of life from an army they believed was defeated. In the first major battle of the campaign, Archduke John attacked two French divisions near the town of Ampfing in Bavaria. The Republicans were successfully driven from the field, but fell back in good order and inflicted severe casualties on the Austrians. This very minor success immediately went to Archduke John's head. Believing the entire French army was shattered and in full retreat, he launched into an all-out pursuit. To facilitate fast travel, he divided his army into four separate columns. Dividing up your forces in the face of an unknown enemy is a massive risk, but apparently Archduke John was more worried that the French might escape than he was about potential resistance. This was an incredibly foolish decision. There was no reason to believe the entire army of the Rhine had been shattered by one minor defeat in which only a fraction of the army had even been engaged. The most logical explanation for the French retreat was that Moreau was concentrating his forces and looking for a good defensive position, which is exactly what happened. Archduke John was sending his divided army straight into a trap. On December 3, 1800, near the Bavarian town of Hohenlinden, Moreau's troops stormed out of the snowy Abersburg forest, enveloping one of the Austrian march columns. To the north, another column found the road blocked by a small French force. Believing this to be a rearguard, they attacked immediately, only to discover that they were now tangling with two entire divisions, over 13,000 Republican troops. Archduke John managed to bring in reinforcements and save his army from total destruction, but only at horrific cost. Four and a half thousand killed or wounded, and nearly 9,000 captured out of an army of 64,000. The survivors were disorganized, scattered, and demoralized. The French lost only about 2,500 men. The Austrians were shattered. In the wake of his victory, Moreau was able to march east, almost without resistance, coming within 30 miles, or 48 kilometers, of Vienna, before he was finally forced to pause. Archduke Charles and the pro-peace faction within the Habsburg court were vindicated. The truth was no longer in doubt. Austria's position was clearly untenable. The Habsburg armies were nearing a state of collapse. There was no choice but to sue for peace. Damn the consequences. Humiliated, the emperor agreed to a new ceasefire with the French, and sent representatives to negotiate a permanent peace treaty along the lines suggested by Napoleon. I hate to describe soldiers as dying for nothing. I don't believe a life has more or less value because of the wider strategic circumstances in which it's taken. And the Battle of Hohenlinden wasn't for nothing. It had a concrete, measurable impact on Austrian policy. However, reflecting on this engagement, you can't help but remark that it might not have happened if Emperor Leopold II had woken up in a different mood on some day in the weeks before the battle, and changed his mind a little sooner. At least some of those men might have lived out their lives in comfort and happiness, instead of dying young on a cold, muddy battlefield. All this high diplomacy can seem a little bit obscure, without the occasional reminder of the stakes. This intricate dance we've been describing between all these kings, emperors, and ministers had a direct, sometimes catastrophic, influence on the lives and destinies of millions of people. I hope this episode hasn't been too much of a slog. I realized a lot of new information. But, as I said at the top, now that Napoleon is in power the scope of our show has widened quite a bit, and we need to set the table to be able to tell the story of what happens next. Bonaparte will be wrestling with this complicated system of European great power diplomacy for the whole rest of his career, to varying degrees of success. Next time, we'll look at the treaties that officially brought the War of the Second Coalition to a close, and get a glimpse of the new international order that Napoleon hoped to create. Until then, thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. Jumba. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. J-j-jumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez